CoinRow Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRow Plus at CoinRowPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Well, it is time to welcome you into the Coin World Podcast as we're back with some more informative information, a great interview today, and all kinds of great information. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And boy, it's amazing what one can learn by delving into the nooks and crannies and down into the rabbit holes of some of the areas of this hobby. We're going to talk about assay commission medals later. And don't hit the pause button just yet. Don't stop listening because there's some really beautiful designs. I know this is a podcast. You can't see the designs here, but you want to hear about them. There's some great rarity involved. This is U.S. Mint-made products and collection that can offer a lifetime pursuit and lots of history, lots of artistry. Our interview with Jeff Danaher is in just a bit. He is somebody who has completed a collection of assay commission medals in silver. We explain all of that. What is an assay commission medal? What was the assay commission? All that in just a little bit. Yeah. And when you say we, it's because it was you and he doing all the talking. I was there, but yet I couldn't really come up with anything because you guys were doing so well. Even though I'm part of the recording, you're not going to hear my voice. So you're stuck with just hearing my voice in this part. So I would encourage you to listen to this interview because it was indeed mesmerizing for me to learn as much as I did in just that short amount of time. So that's our goal with our Coin World podcast is trying to make sure that you get educated and informed. And a lot of times when it's something that you may not have even thought about collecting, it could be something to pique your interest to collect. And we certainly hope that you can get that value from each one of these episodes that we put out here. But we're going to quickly make our way into some of these activities that we really enjoy bringing to you each and every time we come forward. And that's, first of all, to step back into numismatic history. Here we are in the fall of the year, and it's kind of interesting to see events that occurred. And Jeff, you've gone back into the time tunnel, as it were. Tell us what you've discovered here. So, yeah, I, you know, I love seeing what was happening back in the day, whenever the day <laughs> to which we're referring was. And in this case, we landed on September 22nd. Why was that an important day in numismatic history? Well, it was that day in 1988. So in most listeners' lifetime, uh, that day was when Canada began production of the Maple Leaf Silver $5 bullion coins, commonly called Silver Maple Leafs. And there's been several hundred million of these made since 1988. And hmm, we can imagine, let's see, 1988 was 34 years ago, if my math is right. Next, is. Year, next year will be 35. I'm sure the Royal Canadian Mint will do some sort of commemoratives to mark the 35th anniversary. If they have not already issued them, and I just haven't, 
paid attention because of the the sheer deluge of, of products coming from the mint. We can be sure, I mean, given the fact that they've celebrated the 25th anniversary and I, I want to even say the 20th and 10th anniversary and, and maybe even 30th anniversary with special collector editions, often maybe in, a, in proof and different sizes and maybe gold plating. I mean, there, there's all sorts of varieties of maple leafs out there. It has been, the maple leaf is is like, I don't want to say beating a dead horse, but the, the Royal Canadian Mint has certainly used the maple leaf theme for an abundance of coins and it must be working. People, you know, people buy these, collect these because they keep doing them as a mint. They keep making them, keep selling them. One could literally have a forest of maple leaf products of more than a hundred different coins with, with different designs and varieties and, and types and all that as far as, okay, this is the, the common one out silver maple leaf just the bullion piece, then you have all the different effigies that are on them. There's at least three effigies on them, I believe. You'd, you'd have, that was probably the Dora de Petteri Hunt effigy. When it first came out, you have the Susanna Blunt effigy now, and it would have been the Ian Rank Broadley effigy, I believe, in the middle. Well, pretty soon you're going to have a King Charles III effigy. You also have, like I say, there's holograms, there's gold plating, there's any number of things, fractional sizes, kilos, any any number of things. And then the maple tree as a as a motif. I think it was last year our photo finish page we had colorful fall foliage on them. So anyway, there there's a lot to pursue out there. And so that's why it stuck out to me as something worth highlighting. Well and we even did a report recently on CoinWorld and at CoinWorld.com regarding the sales of the maple leaf, the, the silver maple leaf actually up about 0.6 million ounces compared in 2022 to 2021. So you can see that the popularity of the silver maple leaf is really, really still strong for Canada right there. So I think that's a very timely addition to our CoinWorld podcast. Thanks for tooting my horn since that was a story I put together. So. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's what you're, I mean, you cover the globe very, very well here. I mean, and, but that's a lot of the new issues that we get and a lot of the information we get from the World Mints is really, really gives a good indication of what numismatics is all about all around the world, not just in these 50 U.S. states. So it's great to hear. I mean, I personally have always loved the Canadian coins growing up in a, not quite a border state that we did share a lake, but, you know, with Canada. So it's just the idea it was as a child, a lot of the trips into Windsor and doing the things that were up there and got an appreciation for the coinage there in Canada. So, I mean, I do have a few even going back into the 1850s that I enjoy looking at every now and again. So thanks for sharing that, the latest aspect of this week in numismatic history. Now for this week in coin world history, we selected 1977, and that's a very special year, as you'll find out in the interview with Jeff Danaher. But uh, let's go now into the day before the history point that you made here. Let's go to September 21st, 1977. What's making the news? Well, you know, I found it real interesting. We're going to continue to talk about world coins here. The story on the front page of Coin World 
relates to the consortium that landed the contract to market Soviet Olympic coins. Now, and I, I particularly find it amusing in looking back backward in time because of how things developed and some would say devolved surrounding the U.S. relationship with Russia and you know the U.S. non-participation in the games because of, I guess it was, correct me if I'm wrong, the Iran hostage crisis and invasion of Afghanistan. And you also have the 1980 miracle on ice against the Russians. So the 1980 games and 1980 were pivotal in in sort of in the U.S.-Soviet relations. Well, this story talks about the sale of those commemorative coins for the games. And with with some you know, relatively easily, somebody could go find, I want to say it's like 40 coins or something like that. It's a bunch of coins in a set. You can find the sets of the Russian coins made for these games relatively easily and affordably in the marketplace even today, more than 40 years after the games. But this story where David Gans, who wrote for us at the time, says, Plans for the marketing of coins and medals, which will be issued to commemorate the 1980 Summer Olympic Games in Moscow, were finalized September 8th near the Kremlin. There was a consortium consortium of two large multinational firms who led the effort in which a number of American individuals and businesses are expected to participate. One of the names mentioned is Dr. Armand Hammer, not Armand Hammer like the baking soda, but Armand Hammer, who was the head of the Occidental Petroleum Company, and Hammer had ties to the Soviets. And ha- Hammer is a name, Armand Hammer, is a name that would be instrumental in the U.S. selling of commemorative coins for the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. So coins as objects of propaganda and, and national identity and all that, you, you certainly cannot divorce the two. And the Soviets, just as the U.S. would for the 1984 games, just as you know, every nation since basically 1952's Finland, the, the 1952 Finland commemorative, which actually there's 1951 as a lower mintage and, and a rarity and all that, but the 1952 Finnish games, since then, the modern Olympic coin program has, has been very active and, you know, some cases, you know, like the, the United Kingdom issued 29 different 50 pence coins for all the different, a bunch of the different sports for the Olympics and Paralympic Games that were held in 2012 in London. Um, you know, coins are used to carry these messages around the world, and they are certainly used to raise funds, not only for the National Olympic Committees, but also the International Olympic Committee. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee, they all, if, I can't remember the where the next games are going to be, but regardless of where they are, the IOC has jurisdiction, and then sales of those coins in the U.S. have to uh, go through the USOC, and they all get their little cut, and uh, it it is, you know, it helps to facilitate athlete training and all that, wherever the case may be, you know, if it's French Olympics, I mean, the, you know, the Monet de Paris just unveiled, just talked about their, their French program for the 2024 games, I think it is. So 
you know, the Olympic coins are such a big area. There's there's a couple different books out there about them. And so that's what stood out to me. Well, going to the letters page, ironically, here we are talking about Canadian again. It's called Second Guessing. The decision of the Canadian government to shrink their scent has many collectors and businessmen very dismayed and disturbed here in the border state of North Dakota. As most folks know, Canadian and U.S. coinage circulate right along with one another in the border states and are universally accepted here. Businessmen will now be reluctant to accept this smaller size scent because of the difficulties of handling, sorting, separate rolling and bagging, etc., these would be needless problems if the scent were to remain at present size and be made of aluminum. Those many scents would also be very different to handle by the aged or the infirmed. Canada's fear of being thought as a third-rate country for issuing aluminum scents is unfounded. That was a sentiment grounded to when silver was a basis for coin valuation. In today's world, nickel and copper reign and aluminum is compatible both intrinsically and economically. That was a letter from Frank Wertman out of Minot, North Dakota. This, of course, predates the elimination of the Canadian cent. But uh, I thought that was kind of an interest, interesting story there. But one other quick letter here, and this is from a, we're keeping it on the world topic here. It says, I am a beginning collector specializing in all the countries of North and South America. I am 28 years old and would like to start a regular exchange of letters about my hobby, numismatic coins, and coins of the Americas. In the CSSR, there is not much available literature for numismatic collectors of American coins, and I have a special interest in literature about American coins. Yaroslav Kavarik from Czechoslovakia. So there's our world spin. How's that? And Czechoslovakia, of course, sort of under the sphere of influence from the Soviets at that time. At that time. So, so that that bounces off nicely about the Soviet Olympic story. So yeah, it just speaks to the variety of fun stuff out there in the world. Now, last week, we were asking a trivia question that was U.S.-focused. This week, I want to ask you a question that relates to our interview, which is also focused, but first I need an answer. I asked about a pedigree on U.S. numismatic items that was related to Las Vegas. What can you tell me? Not much, actually. I'm thinking Hoover Dam, but I'm, okay. I don't know if I'm right. You are not correct. Uh, I'm actually looking. Huh, I'm looking for Binion, B-I-N-I-O-N. Oh, downtown. Got it. Yep. Binion's, Binion's Horseshoe Casino was the site of a display of million dollars. These were $110,000 U.S. notes, and they entered the market, I want to say about 20 years ago. But Binion himself, the son, Ted Binion, the youngest son of Benny Binion, the casino owner, collected a bunch of Morgan silver dollars, and they were sold in, I want to say, well, the, the case <laughs> was in the late 90s when his treasure, then worth to be estimated to be $7 million, was being dug up after Ted was found dead of a suspicious drug overdose. And during a television conversation, he had reportedly told his lawyer that he wanted the stripper girlfriend removed from the will 
and says, take her out of the will. If she doesn't kill me tonight, if I'm dead, you will know what happened. Well, he did turn up dead. So Binion is the, <laughs> is the fun example there. I don't know if fun's the right word, but that's what I was looking for anyway in a numismatic context. So we talk about assay commission medals and the assay commission in just a moment. I answered this question during the interview. What is the assay commission modeled on? What international event numismatically is it modeled on? And so listen up to the interview and you will hear the answer. The Coinworld Podcast is delighted today to be speaking to Jeff Danaher, who is a collector extraordinaire with a fascinating specialist area of interest. This is a talk about assay commission medals. It's a rather narrow focus, but as you'll find out, there's some artistry, some history, some beauty, and there's a lot of overlap with U.S. coinage history. So thank you so much for being here today. I'm delighted. Thank you for inviting me. Hey, you know, it was a happenstance to meet and then to find out this was an interest of yours. It's something, you know, asset commission medals are something I've been vaguely aware of over, you know, my time with CoinWorld. I don't know that I've, I, I, I don't, I know I don't own one. I don't know that I've ever held one in my hand. I've certainly looked at them in auction catalogs. And as I just said, it's rather narrow focus. That's not how you started with collecting, though, right? No, I, I started the traditional way, finding coins in circulation. I have to give one of my brothers the nod for jump-starting me. He had what we lovingly refer to as the frog bank, and in it he had his coins, just money. And one day the frog bank fell off and opened up, and I was putting the coins back in, and I saw an unusual one with the wheat back. It was a Lincoln cent, happened to be from 1934. And I thought, gosh, that's old. That's 30 years older than I am, because I was born in 64. Went to the school library, asked the librarian, if you remember librarians, how do I find out about this? And she pulled down a guidebook of U.S. coins, also known as a red book, and handed it to me. And I looked at it found out this coin was worth 10 cents. I was ecstatic because it only cost me one cent. I substituted one for my brother. And I just made, if, you know, in my mind, nine times my money or 10 times my money. Woo! If I could do this all the time, I would be rich beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, joking aside, that's how I started. And it was about 1975. Okay. So you did that a bunch of times and now you're Scrooge McDuck swimming in the gold coins. Not quite, but yeah, I, th th that got me interested and I tried to learn as much as I could about coins. And what I found was that there were more coins than I could afford. And a lot of the coins that I really wanted, I couldn't afford. And Jeff, you mentioned a few minutes ago about seeing assay metals in a auction catalog. And I think for me, that was probably the Garrett sale back that Bowers and Morena put on in late 70s, early 80s. And I thought, gosh, these are really cool. They even look like pattern coins. Mm -hmm. One of the early assay metals has the same design as some of the pattern coins by Longacre. 
And so I thought, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if someday I could afford these? But at that time, it was just a pipe dream. So, you know, you, you started with your big score, the 1934 wheat cent. How quickly did you switch to, coin, you know, metals and tokens or exonumia? And, and how did that shift into then assay metals? I mean, you had to have stumbled upon them in some sort of chance way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll make a way too long story short. I found that as a young numismatist, what I had was plenty of time to learn. And so I did the traditional read all the books you could find. And when I would go to coin shows, I would try to cherry pick rare varieties or find things that the dealers had priced as normal and take that money and then buy things that I really loved. Civil War tokens were part of it. Back then, it was military payment certificates. Mm. But there was an early mentor I had who has subsequently passed on. His name was Adolf Weiss. And what Adolf told me at the 1980 ANA convention in Cincinnati was, if you don't specialize, you'll wind up with a collection of garbage. And I thought, hmm, pretty good advice. And with my eyes being bigger than my pocketbook, I decided to start with tokens and metals, especially in Civil War tokens. And that led to me working for a coin dealer who has also passed away, Roy Van Ormer, who had a shop in Washington, Pennsylvania. And in between semesters in college, I would go help Roy with his inventory, with sales, and actually in cataloging his counterstamp collection that eventually was folded into the Brunk book. It was there that I saw my first assay medal. He had probably was one from the 1890s. I remember it had been clean because it was bright, shiny, but it had this phenomenal reverse on it of liberty educating a youth, you know, similar to the design on the 1920, I think, Manila coin. And it was like, wow. That's just spectacular. Tell me about it. That led back to some of the auction catalogs. And I thought, someday I'm going to collect these. Fast forward a couple years, and I was in a coin store and looking through the dealer's inventory of tokens and metals. And lo and behold, there in a two-by-two two was an 1897 assay commission medal. And I looked at the price. And it said 25 bucks. I was like, this can't be, because I knew there were at least a couple hundred. And I went in and I said, you know, how much for this? And he goes, oh, you're a regular customer. I'll take 10% off, $22.50. And I could barely get the bills out of my wallet fast enough. And all of a sudden, I had a medal struck in 1897 in silver that in doing more research found it probably less than 40 of them were struck. So I, I think our listeners then might want to find out what are assay metals. And if we want, we can shift into that. But from there I had my first one and I was hooked. Yeah. You're an excellent point to, to define assay commission metals. And I shouldn't have taken for granted that people know, you know, so the assay commission 
is sort of modeled on the British trial of the picks. And every year, generally, for, for quite a long time, the assay commission would meet to guarantee the previous year's coinage. And beginning in 1860, there were medals made to mark the event to honor the members. And these were also given to treasury officials, men officials, that kind of things, even even presidents. Is that right? Yep. You, you, you got it. And so it started in 1860 with the issuing of medals, skipped a couple of years during the Civil War. But the Assay Commission continued into late 70s, early 80s, but the last produced medal was a pewter one struck in 1977. And for those who might be interested in assay medals, this one is fairly available because it was sold from the mint to anyone that wanted to buy it. I think the issue price was something like 20, 20 bucks. They're around. You'll find them on eBay fairly regularly in the $30 to $40 range. And that medal may not have been given to a commissioner, but it still is a, a fascinating piece of our history. And, and you said that was pewter? That was pewter. So yeah. assay medals were struck predominantly in two materials, bronze and silver. There are assay metals known in aluminum, in white metal, in brass, and in the, the current composition, I kind of call it goldine. It's that light bronze color that most of the current metals are struck in. But the earlier bronze ones have that dark chocolate patina that look like you could take a bite out of it and you'd have a, a nice piece of milk chocolate there. I looked at the, the listing and the first book that I came across on assay metals was the thick reference metals of the United States Mint, the first century. So it was from 1792 to 1892 by R.W. Julian. And incidentally, it came out in 1977 which is, oh. as you noted, important in the story of assay commission metals. You're, you're right. There's my copyright on, on my copy here. And I got this as, purchased it as a TAMS member, and it had great pictures and information about assay commission metals. And going back to the specialty uh, that I, my mentor had taught me, Mr. Weiss, I decided that there were too many to try to collect the whole thing. And that's somewhat of an excuse. The reality is I didn't like the look of some of the later ones. I just didn't find their coloration attractive. And they're the rarest ones. They're the hardest ones to secure because they were issued in the lowest number. So at the time I started, they would have been about $1,000 each. And I was going, oh, that's kind of insane for someone that was just out of college, where the silver ones were limited. And depending upon how you count them, the PCGS registry set 
has 43 different ones. And that was my goal, was to obtain one of every silver medal that was produced in quantities of more than one. And we need to footnote this because in the early history of the men, or I should say the later 1870s, 80s, and 90s, there were a lot of shenanigans that went on where things were produced for collectors, for trading for the mint's own coin cabinet, and assay metals were really desirable to collectors of that era. And they would mint you up one if you were a, a good enough friend. And they also made some mules. There's a, an 1892 obverse with an 1897 reverse and vice versa of a 97 obverse, 92 reverse. I, I said that that would be wonderful to get it, but there's only one. And that's not really the ones that were issued to the assay commissioners to mark their participation in testing the coins. So I eliminated a couple. And of course, there were no gold ones, despite the best efforts of <laughs> some individuals, as I seem to recall. There's a rumor of a gold one in the 20s, yeah, but, I, but I, I don't, again, rumor. So I have never seen one. And this is the challenge with assay metals, is they're scarce as proverbial hen's teeth. Some of the silver metals were issued in quantities, and I'm not talking about the ones that were just made for collectors, but a ranging of three to four to most of them might have been struck. This is talking about mintage in the 18, you know, 1900s, 1880, 1890, of 40, maybe 50 pieces. That's it. I call that rare. Yeah, that, that's insanely low, and it also has to be quite the challenge. Now, you, you mentioned 43 distinct pieces for a collection of, you know, non-unique, excuse me, non-unique pieces. You recently completed that, right? I did. It, it was both a terrific day and, and kind of a sad day because I had been working on this for almost three decades. They, the, there's two places predominantly, and let me rephrase that, three places that you're going to find assay metals. Occasionally, they show up on eBay. Someone will have an estate and it will make its way onto eBay. And I've had a saved search on eBay for almost since its inception. The second place that you'll see them is when a major auction, a major collection is sold at auction. And this would happen sometimes once every three, five, sometimes 10 years. Part of the fun of collecting these for me was also buying old auction catalogs and trying to be able to trace the pedigree. The third place you find them sometimes would be a, like a private negotiation from between you and another collector. I'm not necessarily the only one with a complete set of silver ones. I'm the only one that I know that has a complete set of silver ones. 
And there has never been a complete set of silver medals ever presented at auction. The last medal that I purchased was a few years ago, and it was the 1916 silver assay medal that belonged to Woodrow Wilson, and it has Woodrow Wilson's name on the edge. Wow. That was kind of fun. But the, the what also attracted me to these things, though, is their beauty. The chief engraver had the control over making these acid metals and com combining with the, the head of the mint. Many of them were made by William Barber. James Longacre designed the first few. Then you've got George Morgan. They range in theory from honoring liberty and figures that were allegorical in the beginning part. And eventually they shifted over usually having the president on the front and some type of motto or image on the back. Occasionally they would even honor uh, a previous men official who, who died. Like there's an, an 1879 medal that is extremely rare in silver. There are five and it has H.R. Lindemann on the obverse of it. And on the back, it has a mourning figure on the back, on the, the reverse design for just having, honoring his death. Yeah, and there's, there's some with almost like tombstone-looking figures on the back and all that. I, I, I did go to my copy of the Julian book in that early period, that 1860 to 1892 period. I think my favorites are the 1871 with the, the first appearance of the Archimedes reverse and, uh, and then 1891, although I can't remember what that has now. But anyway, there, there's such a an array of designs, although, you know, as you know, the, the president started appearing, I want to say around 1880. The, those, some of those early designs, it just, you really get a sense of the artist temperament and, and aesthetic, you know, that the, the designer had free reign, it seems like. Is, is that the case, or what do you know about that? Well, th that's my understanding. It was a chance for someone to play or show or, or be creative. One of my favorite designs is the reverse of the 1890, and it has Liberty um, standing or kneeling behind a small child with scales. And this design was produced for a couple of different times. Sometimes they would reuse portions of the design. But I've looked at that and said, that is just a beautiful little metal. And wouldn't, again, my thought was, wouldn't that be awesome to collect them? One of the challenges assay metal collectors have is we don't know for sure how many were struck. There are lots of records, and Julian and Cush did a terrific job in a, a reissued work that expanded on Julian's first book that started in, ended with 1892, 
the medals of the United States Assay Commission was a pamphlet put out by the TAMS Token of Metal Society, and it was issued. It's TAMS Journal number twenty nine five, and you can find this available on eBay. But they did their best going back to Mint Records to indicate how many were produced and which ones were presented to the assay commissioners. To be an assay commissioner was an honor. You probably had to know somebody. It, it did it contain some mint officials, sometimes congressmen or friends of congressmen or big donors, early scientists. Later on, they had a lot of numismatists were able to be on this. And as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, the purpose of the assay commission was to verify that the coins with that time, which had precious metal in them, that the dime contained 10 cents worth of silver and the gold coins contained their appropriate value, proving and verifying that the the components of the coins were good and we didn't have any debasement going on. And I want to say, was it 1977 was the final assay commission meeting although it wasn't formally dissolved until 1981? I, that's my understanding, yes. And, you know, in 1981, other than commemorative coins, we were totally unclad. So there really, it, it didn't make any sense financially, although now that we have bullion coins being issued, you could make a case that there should be some testing of both precious metal commemoratives and our bullion pieces produced by the mint. But I don't think the commission's ever going to come back. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you point that out because I think that's a point that William T. Gibbs, the managing editor of Coin World, has made in an editorial because, you know, the, the Royal Mint makes great hay out of promoting its trial of the picks every year. And Japan even has a similar sort of take on the assay commission or the trial, you know, but the U.S. doesn't. And and it does seem, as you know, maybe it, it could serve a role today that it would not occupy, would not have occupied 41 years ago. Now, right before we wrap this up, I do want to ask, so we talked about the 77 meeting as the last, but when was the final silver medal made? So when does your collection stop? Does it all, go all the way up to that point or was there was there a change? Because I know you mentioned the pewter version. Did they, because of the cost of silver or something, how did that play out? That's a, a terrific question. I don't know that anyone knows why one year they would have bronze, one year they'd have silver. Sometimes they'd have both bronze and silver. And then, as I, I mentioned, starting about during World War One, the metal content, the composition, and the size changed. So going from that chocolate copper color to the, the more orangey bronze, there was a regular production of assay metals in silver from 1867 to about 1916. Now, not every year, but many of those years are that they had silver ones. Then there's a gap, and they reissued a, an assay, or I should say they issued an assay medal in silver in 1960 and in 1963. 
those were the last two. So there was a, a big gap from the 16, and that's the one I have that was Woodrow Wilson's, till 60 and 63. They're really hard to find. I was fortunate to, and this was an eBay purchase, I obtained the 1960 with a pedigree going back to Eamon Carter Jr., who was on the Asset Commission, a, a famous collector. And in addition to assay metals, I tried to buy attractive ones. And you have to be a little bit flexible because if there's only four of them, you know, condition is not as critical as having the chance to buy one. But wherever possible, I wanted to obtain one from a famous collection. So I have some from the Rogers Fred collection, from Ernie Cush the Salisbury collection, and even going back, Garrett and Fold. So it's, it's kind of fun to have a wondering why those individuals collected these, what they thought of them. And I wanted to keep that records going. So I tried to describe the metals, where they, who owned them before and what makes them significant. Cool. So you've completed the task. How long do you hold on to these and appreciate them and enjoy them? Or at what point do you let them re-enter the wild, as it were, for future collectors and maybe engage in a different topical pursuit? Yeah, that's the $64,000 question, I think, for everyone. We're just stewards. I don't own these. They're going to be here after I'm gone, and I, I'm con strongly considering exhibiting them at a, a show like the ANA, where I could be able to display them so other people can get appreciation. The challenge with exhibiting them through the set registries has to do with the peculiarities of each of the different major grading services. PCGS has a set registry, but they only allow their own metals in it. NGC, much to my chagrin, has not it allowed me to create a competitive set. They will allow me to have a non-competitive set with that show both PCGS and NGC. I, I've got that in process. I'm not sure when I'm going to sell them. They have a value that I can use to talk about history. You know, I think, Jeff, when we first met, I was sharing that most of the time when we buy a numismatic item, we're buying a story. And it's the time of what it recommended. And I haven't found anything else that has caught my fancy, like the assay metals with both their scarcity their historical significance and their beauty. I have been asked, am I going to go after all of them? And the answer is no. I, I do know that there were two major collectors, Max Braille and, and John Pittman, that were trying to put together the entire set and that some of their heirs had been considering trying to complete it. I, I don't know where those things stand. Sadly, because of the competition for the limited varieties, the information as to who owns what and where and how 
you know, you can get two people that need one medal and the price goes insane. Anyway, so, sorry for digressing there. To answer your question, I, I just don't know at this point. Okay. Well, we're going to let that stand as the last word. If you do exhibit, please do let me know so I can come see them. And maybe we can even share that with the Coin World audience. And for sure, listeners to the podcast here hopefully come away with greater appreciation of the artistry, the rarity, and the history of these curious and fascinating little nuggets of numismatic, you know, Americana. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and letting me talk a little bit about my favorite section of the hobby. That was our interview with Jeff Danaher about assay commission medals. We hope you enjoyed it. We had a blast doing it and it's just so fun. So hopefully, hopefully you learned something. Yes, indeed. Learn something every step of the way here. And appreciate, Jeff, taking the time to join us here at the Coin World Podcast. Appreciate all our listeners being a part of it here, too. Hopefully you're subscribing to it so you can catch up on all the episodes. So thanks so much for being here for this latest one right now. We hope that everybody is having a great time enjoying this great Big Ten hobby that we haven't used that phrase in two episodes, but we're having a great time doing this podcast and educating and informing you. So thanks so much for your participation. Please reach out to us if you have any ideas or suggestions, but in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.